Welcome to Startup Stories, where we go behind the scenes of some of the most interesting and innovative tech startups in the world. Each episode will bring you in-depth interviews with entrepreneurs and business leaders, sharing their personal stories on success, failure, and everything in between. So whether you're an entrepreneur yourself or someone that's just generally interested in the world of startups, then Startup Stories is the perfect place for you to gain insight and inspiration into some of the most exciting players in the game. So sit back, relax, and join us on a journey of Startup Stories. Hi, Tim. Welcome to the Startup Stories podcast. Great to have you. Jordan, thanks for having me. Good to be on. My pleasure. So we've got some listeners that are obviously going to want to know who you are. Can you give a brief introduction to to what you do and who you are? Yeah, my name is Tim. I'm a software entrepreneur, currently co-founder of Copernicus Automotive. We do software for self-driving cars. And uh, yeah, software has been one of my mantras. Copernicus is my fifth company. So I'm a diehard early stage guy and um, yeah, originally from Hamburg, Germany and um, did some uh, business administration studies at the beginning, but then found my true calling and everything regarding software. Wow. And for someone that's got, you know, five companies, that's already incredible, even if you had just started one business. So be good to uncover, you know, why five businesses up until this point. So what I want to understand is, who was Tim when he was younger? Take me back to your childhood so we can understand you from its earliest possible context. Yeah, I, I grew up in the suburbs of Hamburg in northern Germany, a peaceful, middle-class, well-protected environment with his sister. I was always a curious kid. I was a good but not great student. I kind of deteriorated a little bit towards the end of, of high school because I was just had too many other ideas of what was good and what was cool. Yeah, I was always curious. So that was at a time where before I turned 15, there were no home computers, as they were called at the time. And then when I turned 15, I got my first uh, computer. And uh, that was, uh, yeah, everything else after that is history. I caught the bug, the, the computer bug early, and then have been doing tons of things, but everything around, basically around software at the core. How would you have described yourself as a child? Open-minded, sociable, very, very curious. Where did the curiosity come from? I wanted to understand things. I always liked technology. I like to understand things. It's like, where does this person in the TV come from? At the time, the TVs were still big. So you could actually question whether that person sits somewhere inside that thing. And that was it was nurtured by our parents. And honestly, also, it was maybe also because everything else was okay. So there were no physical needs there was i mean everything everything that i needed for daily life was there so i actually even had i had the liberty to be curious about the things that that surround us and always liked technology always liked cars always wanted to find out how things work and that was i don't know i can't tell you where exactly it came from so my my father is a doctor my mother is a pharmacist so it's it's not that one of them was like an engineer or a computer scientist or something of that sort it was just it was they, they encouraged us to to ask questions that was basically it can you think of a pivotal moment in your life that made you the person that you are today Oh, that's a big question. <laughs> that's a big question. So, well, I can tell you what it was not. There's no hard cut in my life. There's no sudden death of a loved one or anything. I think it is my very stable upbringing that ultimately evolved into who I am today and a fairly painful life. 
but fueled by then curiosity and um, obviously living abroad. I did a high school exchange when I was 16 and lived in a city that was not that well known at that time. And now it's very famous because it's it's the home of um, Microsoft. It's called Redmond um, on the West Coast. After the university, I went to live abroad, lived a few years in Spain. So, yeah, all of that put together combined with the people I met and the opportunities that I had to work on. That's basically I'm I'm the result of my curiosity and my also my will to move around and to, and to travel and, and meet new people. I like that curiosity. I think it's a, a running theme with entrepreneurs. I mean, how else would you think of a, a better way to do something if you wasn't curious of what can be done? Right. That's very interesting. So. Talk to me about your road to entrepreneurship. Explain to me the first time you had a thought about starting your own business and how you turned it into a reality. Yeah. So after I left university, went to Spain, uh, joined a, a fairly small consulting company at the time. And what we were doing there was we helped big consortias win mobile telephony licenses and then help them build the operators. So it was basically... We were a small startup. When I started, we're like 40 people. When I left, about 300. And that company itself was growing and we were advising um, investors how to build, advising and helping how to build uh, basically large scale startups. What are like the mobile operators today, right? Vote of uh, O2 Germany was was called Viag Intercom at that time still, um, and that was independent of E Plus, and and that was one of the the projects that I worked on like several years actually before they even launched. And I really I really liked the the early stage uh, phase of something where you can still think about the business, where you can still explore and again also learn a lot and be curious and try to bring that into basically fill a white page white page white page of paper or white piece of paper. That for me is always more interesting than take somebody's 500 page dossier and try to find the spelling checks. And and for me, again, that was like, it was early stage. And after that, I decided that I wanted to give it a try. And, and that was something, it was January 2000. So that's when we started our first company. 2000 was a, it was a critical year, but it was definitely for me, the first time then that I, I saw that I had the opportunity to work on startups without being an entrepreneur. And then I built my own company, co-founded my first company together with uh, two partners. What was what was the first business you started up? So that was a company where we are, where we try to automate uh, processes in everything that is after sales for machinery, predominantly focusing on repair. So once you have a product, the question is, how do you do repair operations and maintenance? And the more expensive the product is, the higher level of maintenance this needs, the more important it is to actually manage this. And I mean, we're talking here 2000 and uh, the fully digitized workshop was still a couple of decades away, we have to say. So we were way too early for what we did. But it was an interesting experience that not only it's not what I learned was it's not only a great idea that you need, it's also a good team and great timing. And so my partner, who actually came up with the idea, is still at it and is extremely successful now. But that is like 23 years after we started. So timing is something that I definitely got out of that. That is a that was a big time learning. But for him as well as as for me, because I'm a business guy. He he was the engineer. He was the the spiritual father of this product. And also he totally overestimated potential adoption rates. And I totally underestimated how long 
this could be how we until people really are, are really ready for change and especially in an industrial environment and, and not in a b2c environment wow so the business is still going today yeah exactly it's still going today it was then it was it, it, so let's put it that way it was revamped and and it was a instead of licensing this tool out he started to use it for himself first fine-tuned it probably the next 12 to 15 years and then started to slowly license it out and it works for a couple of the the largest power tool manufacturers in the world and is basically running their their repair operations as as an oper- so so to say as an operating system and yeah completely under the radar you probably wouldn't even know where to look for it <laughs> if i weren't told weren't telling you but it's a fantastic it's a fantastic product and service and um and he now starts to to license it out that is incredible, though, when you look at it from that perspective of uh, the never give up attitude that is uh, truly living it, right? No, absolutely. And it was a product that had an application because he saw the issue in the family business that he was he just had inherited. So he needed it. So it was not like a couple of guys with a technology trying to find a problem. No, there was a problem. We had an application for it. The market was just not ready. There was nobody as forward thinking as he was to actually adopt it at that time. And that is, again, we were curious and we had um, one of the uh, one of the other, uh, so the, the third guy, also an engineer about it. We had a fourth guy kind of like in our orbit, he did his PhD around this topic. Fantastic ideas, but like entrepreneurially saying, okay, if you want to do just that and license it, <laughs> we were too early. It's like that, just too early. Okay, so as I say, for a man that's you know started five businesses from the first business to to 2016 when Copernicus Automotive was born, mm-hmm. walk me through that path to 2016 of starting Copernicus. Yeah, so the underlying theme is definitely that I just like early stage, right? So I wanted to to do something either myself or work in an early stage environment. So after IPOM, the name of this company, the next thing I did was I joined a consortia that had developed uh, an online casino technology that they wanted to operate like tied to a land-based, fully regulated casino in Germany. And that was something that we were then trying and, and ultimately at least for for some time succeeding to operate that was where I, where I learned regulation so that was something obviously gambling regulation is a minefield and it's extremely complicated we did that i was fortunate enough to run this for about four four and a half years and then from the former consulting times i was approached by a former colleague and said okay so we need an early stage person who is interested in building something telco related but something new and then that was basically Skype. So Skype was, the core tech was ready. They needed a couple of people in the region. So for Germany, Austria, Switzerland, they just needed someone on the ground who could operate on his or her own and then basically build a team and help establish the brand in Germany. And, and that was me basically running it out of my living room at the beginning. Again, don't be afraid <laughs> and and just... Don't tell the people that you run it out of your living room and then you even get an appointment with <laughs> Deutsche Telekom, right? Wonderful. So as I say, we're now in 2016, you started Copernicus. So where did the business idea come from? Why did you decide to turn it into a reality? So what we did was my partner and I, we sat together almost to the day seven years ago and said, okay, look, 
So the two of us, we love cars and we both have a software background. So obviously our personal conversations centered around that. And so the, the point then was also looking at Germany, the country is like, there's so much net worth. There's so much of what this company is about, is about cars. So what's going to be the next iteration of cars? And it's not the faster engines anymore. It's probably electric vehicles. Okay, we're not good about that. So it's it's software. Everything is software driven, right? It's not bigger rims or I mean, the, 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 I mean, we, we talk about, is there going to be a general speed limit or not? So, so for us, the, the question was a different one. So how can we help also sustain a little bit of the wealth that is, uh, is in Germany by delivering something that helps and could help the German car industry by adding value? So we were then tossing around and say, okay, Germans are fantastic in coach building. We don't want to build cars that are not as good as the German cars. So in, like in general, at least as a stereotype, the build quality of German cars is very good. The one thing that we were not seeing at that time was like, how good is the software going to be for autonomous driving? And we had the feeling that a lot of that was coming out of Silicon Valley, maybe a little bit out of Israel and an unclear amount coming out of China. And But we were not seeing much in Germany. And that was, that was something where we said, okay, now let's figure, let's somehow try to figure that out. Um, we were lucky enough to get get a couple of um, car enthusiasts at the beginning to also invest in this venture and started to build a car, which at the beginning was basically just a run-of-the-mill Volkswagen Golf, and we added some self-driving tech to it. So we wanted to build something that is that you can bolt onto a car and make it a self-driving car. Fantastic idea, presented it in 2018. But then in, then when we really started to look at, okay, when will the cars actually have processors that are powerful enough to actually do this on board? How's the regulation about getting all of this? That was it was just something where we say the, the idea is fantastic and we, we proved that we can do it, but it's not a scalable business model. But what it helped us to do is to get the credibility that we actually can drive cars and get some contacts into the automotive industry. And we were contacted by people that asked us whether we can help them drive cars from some of the largest car manufacturers in the world. And we were like, okay, like we are at that time, we were like a five-person startup. So like, why do you talk to us? And what what we learned at that point was that these people were from the production side of things and, and thought, okay, maybe the full self-driving will still take a while, but maybe we can use part of that technology in a confined environment. And long story short, what ultimately came out of this is, is automated valet parking, where basically you install the technology in the infrastructure and as if you were driving a remote controlled car, you, the infrastructure then drives the car without any humans inside. So basically, it's basically car logistics from the end of the production line towards the finishing area to the logistics yard. But then ultimately as an end consumer feature, that's it's basically a fully automated parking function where you can drop off your car um, at the gate at the airport and it drives the car to the holiday parking spot three miles away. We believe actually that that will be one of the first full self-driving applications at all in the world because it's a narrow use case at low speeds and there are no people in the car and everything which will be higher speeds with people in the car on public roads that will still take a few years until it there will be a rollout in the mass market. So this being your fifth business obviously you've got a lot of practice. How was the first year starting this business was it was it streamlined was it easy or did you face any challenges? No, it's never easy. And this one was particularly difficult. The situation is that we were 
thinking uh, at the beginning we didn't have the business model clear we just knew that we wanted to do something here we were tinkering around with the tech so the one thing we needed and, and luckily found in our first investors was just also curiosity <laughs> they, they wanted to figure out things they did not ask us for a full-blown business case they did not want to understand where the revenue in year three is coming from and why it is 10 instead of 11 or 9 right so that was good they just gave us basically they just supported us with money and, and and cars to tinker around and then i'd say the first year is especially if you were not trying to solve an existing problem or to just be a substitute to existing tech. But we're trying to build a technology for a market that wasn't there yet. So that's kind of something where you say, okay, that's a double-sided problem, right? That's something you should not do as a first-time founder when you're just doing starting out after your bachelor with like 22. That's You need a bit more grit and resilience probably to get through that and have a stronger conviction and also be able to, to convince people in the industry that this is actually an interesting topic. And I think we have been driving this topic in the industry and help also pushing it forward because there were people that have or had already thought about something something and 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 other players that are now friendly competitors to ours and they had or also started at this so as as always good ideas normally don't start at one place but they normally sprout a little bit when the time is ripe and the technology is there because never think you're the only one that has a good idea it's just uh, the question is now how do you execute that and it was important to basically just have some time bought through money to tinker around. And ultimately, it took us a couple of years until we decided what eventually will be called automated valet parking was the kind of technology and that we are not building anything to be deployed onto the car, but outside. So if the question is, if you would ask the questions like, how long did it take until you understood that there actually is a market and, and how to exactly address the market? That was probably like two years, two years and a half. And then it was still unclear whether the car industry would adopt it and whether we would be one of the players that could work in this industry. So that leads me to my next question. Let's talk all about mindset then, because, you know, mm. two, two and a half years, still unsure whether the market's going to take to it. Mm. Tell me about the mindset and the kind of team that you need to thrive in a startup where the unknown is obviously very uncertain. Mm. So what I've learned throughout all of the startups is at the beginning, you have to talk about the job, the kind of the vision, what you want to do, what you want to build. And you obviously have to try to find, it's like more trying to build a street soccer team where you have to convince people that now, now is a good time to actually play soccer and play it with you. And if you find these, these people, then they make sure that these people are motivated by the idea because these people are not motivated by the brand name of your business because you just, frankly, you don't have none, right? There is no brand name. There's nothing. There's You need people that like to build, that like yourself, like to build uh, starting from a white sheet of paper and then just start building. And I've seen it time and time and time again, and most prominently actually uh, with Skype. Skype was still considered a startup when I joined, although they were already quite successful. But then when eBay bought the company, all of a sudden, the type of applicants completely changed. And you got these guys from all of the fancy companies telling you that they really would love to work 
for Skype because it's just a fantastic brand name. And you're seeing, okay, they just want another big logo in their CV, right? And they were not even so much worried about the actual task they were supposed to do. And in early stage, you need a team that is totally enthusiastic about the idea, that is curious, that is that wants to try new things. And since lots of the startups are building something new, you also should not hire for like prior experience. Yeah, education is good and knowing some, like obviously if you need a coder, then he needs to code. But in, in our case, we're not looking for people that have built self-driving cars because there are hardly any in the market. And so for us, we are always looking at is the, is the basic skill set there and is the motivation and the passion for the topic there. And that is then... That's the kind of people that you need at the beginning because neither brand name nor salary levels will get them, lure them away from one of the big companies or compete, be able to compete with the big companies. So walk me through the process of building through all of the struggles then. In a nutshell. <laughs> so yeah. well, the first of all, the vision has to be big enough that even after you get a kick in the stomach or like a punch in the stomach that you, you still want to go, Right. If you're so, so there has to be a big vision. And our big vision is that we believe that software will ultimately drive cars. We believe that we can build that in the motherland of the automotive industry. And we believe that that we have a solution that is as good enough or even like potentially even market leading to be adopted by by the big big guys in the industry, notably either big suppliers or the big automakers. And that for us was big enough to also make us keep going, right? Where we where we said, okay, so what are the milestones that we have to do? Obviously, you need a prototype at the beginning. Without a prototype, nobody's ever going to talk to you. Then you have a prototype, and then you try to find the stakeholders to which those things actually apply. And then the important thing is to always understand, be in, in a discussion with the potential customers, understand what they want, bring in all the ideas, and also all of their needs and problems. And then on the other hand, build an efficient team that can then execute, that can execute on these, I don't want to say requests, but on the needs, because the requests are often not what you actually should be focusing on, but trying to understand the deeper needs and then building a product that answers those needs. Go out again, show it again, have contact with your customer early on, and then iterate this product, including all of the failures, but iterate in fairly small steps so that if you that you see early on if you're getting off track that was one of those those things that that have worked in the past and that again have worked with copernicus there sometimes are companies that raise tons of money and especially in the US that is the case when you raise a 100 200 300 500 million you don't need a customer for the at least five years, right? And that's the problem because then when you come out, there's it's hit or, hit or miss. And then fixing that, if it's not completely what the customer needs, is extremely expensive. And uh, then we tried to be nimble and we had to be nimble because, I mean, obviously funding rate levels in, in Europe for automotive deep tech, if you want to call it like that, or have been not never been high and saying, okay, we develop a company which ultimately will be something like a automotive supplier for software. That's something that's also fairly new as a concept mm -hmm. because the automotive suppliers themselves in the past, the stereotype was we built something that has software inside, but it ultimately is a product, physical product that we then sell to the car manufacturers. And 
And so for us, it was an extremely inter- interesting experience and it's it's humbling, but it's also it also helps you not only to understand what the customer actually needs, but also helps you on a bigger scale to also fully understand the industry with all its inner working. So having contact with potential customers as early as possible was one of our learnings. Well, let's, it was actually not just a learning. It was one of our strategies and um, and the learnings were invaluable. Yeah, that's a very valuable lesson. Thanks for that. So mm-hmm. on the subject of mindset and struggle, for someone that's had five businesses, a lot of people seem to think that founders and CEOs are superhuman and they don't really have any struggles. Talk to me about you know not being superhuman and what you would do to cope when you feel like giving up or you just really don't see any light at the end of the tunnel. Well, I give some lectures at a couple of those uh, of the well-known startup incubators. And um, and so one of the questions that always comes is like, is it better to found as a team or as a solopreneur? And for me, the set of founders and let's say the first three to five employees, that's basically your core. And that should not be your partner because, I mean, if your emotional curve is like this, you don't want to have your partner who has exactly the same emotional curve. Uh, you need somebody else. And that, that is the most important thing is, is basically who do you want to embark on this journey with? And if you don't have the right people, then you're not going to get there. Founders are not superhumans. Founders, or let's say for the startups that actually succeed, I think a big part comes down to who were the first five to 10 people in the room? Did they trust each other? Did they help each other? Also, this not only technical support, but it's also emotional support, right? And so that was for us always a big thing. And the team... The early team was fantastic. Still have lots of them are still on board or went on to do other great things. And for me, that is that is also something that, that always motivates me. Given my age, everybody that, that works for me in the team is younger than me. And well, I'm the same age as my co-founder. But everybody else who works with us is like easily 20, <laughs> 20 to 30 years younger. So that was then something that's extremely motivating. And as I said, nobody does it alone. There is no superhuman. There is somebody on the stage, but that person represents a team of highly committed people. And if you don't have that team and if you don't have that team spirit, then you're not going to get far. You're not going to survive seven years as we do or or longer than that probably falls apart after a year or so. Yeah, that's very true. You can only go so far when you're a solopreneur, as I like to call it. Completely agree with that. So. The sticking point for me is like when you're building a company, you're not looking for no ordinary employee, you're looking for someone that's willing to join you from just an idea, no no proof of certainty, you know, the first employee beyond your just your, your co-founder. How do you find that sort of person? Well, I can speak for the people that basically came through me. And one of the things that helps is if you've done it once, then maybe there are a few people that have seen that, that you have actually work on interesting things and ultimately they work out well. Or maybe even if they don't work out well, they understand that you treat the people always with respect. Now, as I having done it four times, when I, I talked to friends and talked told friends about the fact that I'm, I'm building my fifth company, then one of the guys that I met in an earlier venture said, and shout out to Christian here, he said, okay, you got to meet this guy. And I think he would be great. And that guy then joined as, apart from the two founders, as the first employee, is our CTO, has ever been. Super great guy. And and that is basically, I could leverage a little bit the trust that people had in me 
for a referral out of the startups that I did earlier. Then he went to a, a meetup at one point and said, the guy that organized this meetup, that, that guy is a super great guy and really knowledgeable in AI. And so we got talking with him. And again, that guy, we were able to convince to join us because not because of our brand name, but because of the task. And, and, and so he didn't let our AI efforts for five years. And that's basically how it goes. It's, it's more networking. We have also been... Apart from the referrals, we also look then for special interest stuff. So basically, if you need a Rust developer, post on a Rust forum. And um, or if you need some whatever hardware tinkerer, then like try to go where these people are and um, not just don't put your put up the billboards on one of the big recruiting sites because it's you, you got to be super, super targeted. You got to be a sniper in the early days because it's extremely, extremely hard and and that's also where once in a while, although startups don't have money for headhunters, once in a while a headhunter can help actually to to get also the right person. Because if you know that there's a right person, sometimes it helps that a third party can convince that person that these founders that are looking for this kind of help on our complete lunatics, right? <laughs> Basically, yeah. Help as an experienced advisor and say, okay, look, I've talked to them. They're good. And, and so it's difficult at the beginning. It's difficult. Some of the early hires actually, I mean, especially for the management team, can make or break a company. So don't take this lightly. And just because somebody has been at a fancy brand name does not mean that he or she is the right person for the job in the environment that you're willing to or able to create, right? If it's in your living room at the beginning, then people have to be comfortable with that and not asking, say, where's the cantina? Kind of where's the spa? Where are the massages? That, <laughs> that does not exist in startup land, right? Now, I completely agree with you on that. That uh, makes total sense. So, all right, then let's flip it then. So what's been the best moment for you at Copernicus? For me, it always comes down when we do customer presentations and people that we've seen before and that we've shown PowerPoints to, then they were like questioning whether that is actually even possible or so on. And then you do these presentations and they're like, wow, this is amazing. Because for me, that's a celebration of what the team has built mm -hmm. and to actually see that it all comes together. Because I mean, it's it's always everybody works on his or her stream, but ultimately to when it's demo day, all of these things have to work in unison and all have to work together. So for me, that is always a fantastic point of celebration of all of the talent that we have in the team, how far technology in general has come. And it's always for me, just it's it's always fun to convince people that more is possible than they thought. And that for me is just, those moments are magic. And um, I'm always celebrating them like internally and always super, super proud of, of what the team has built. Because again, they're all fantastic people, all of them super smart and all of them super enthusiastic, but no one could have built it on his or her own. Yeah, completely agree with you. So it's always a, a collaborative yeah. effort it goes back to what we were saying before being a solo entrepreneur if you've only got one idea you can't really expand beyond that but if you've got multiple people you know putting their input in you can build something far greater yeah completely agree with that so all right copernicus you were founded in 2016 you're seven years deep now how many people are you now we're approaching 40 approaching 40 okay so what are the goals and ambitions for Copernicus going forward how far do you want to take it <laughs> all the way <laughs> on the one hand it has already been seven years on the other hand it has just been seven years so it's what we're seeing now is that the automotive industry the manufacturers have embraced that technology out of the uh 
the, a tech group within the VDA, the German Automotive Industry Association. There's an ISO norm that came out of that. And now it is basically a standard. It's been embraced by basically all major car manufacturers around the globe now in terms of understanding it, trying to understand it, trying to figure out the implications, looking for proof of concepts. There's a select few players that can offer this kind of solution, us being one of them. Um, and it's it's a fantastic point where you have interest, interest from a technological point, high high demand, because if we can help the efficiency in the in the in the car production process by freeing the workers that currently drive the cars to do more value-add services. That is something that the car industry desperately need because of the skilled labor shortage that we see everywhere. And so for us, it's factories now within the next two years, there'll be the first big factories up and running. And once they produce enough cars, a couple of years later, it's going to be parking industry. Um, so it's going to be automated valet parking. We definitely want to be part of that. To what extent that will be in terms of partnerships or maybe a joint venture at some point, I don't know yet. I don't know yet. Right now, we are an independent company. We have financial investors. We have Continental, the automotive supplier, as a financial investor on in our company, completely transparent here. But we are right now, we are enjoying the ride. And right now, there's there's no need to change anything in that setting. So from a personal standpoint, Tim, many would say after five or four companies that, you know, you've, you've done enough, you've achieved a lot, you could ride off into the sunset now. Why do you still do what you do? What motivates you to get out of bed in the morning and do this every single day? I just love it. I just, it's the, it's the kind of, it's the kind of work where somebody who is curious, who by his experience is a pure generalist. I'm not neither superhuman nor am I extremely good at anything in particular, but I am fairly worry-free and let's say fairly good at, at a multitude of things. And that's something is where I'd say in, in the early stage and in, in, in building up a company and, and trying to set up an environment where the team members can excel, that is just something that gives me a great kick. And it gives me a, a, with a bit, a bit of vanity now. So seeing that this company name that we dreamt up seven years ago, and that was a completely nobody by that time is now known in the industry as, and it stands for automated valet parking, a, a term that we helped coin. That for me obviously makes me super proud and, and it's extremely motivating. I have the chance to work with curious people, a lot younger than me, that also push my mental boundaries and just let me see and help me explore new areas. So for me, it's just that. It's the sheer motivation out of the team and the topic that we work on. Yeah, I have to say it's a very inspiring story, Tim. Uh, it must be great to, as you say, being your age and, and the, the team being 20, 30 years younger, but just to probably maybe see yourself in them, in some of them to help them inspire them. But as you say, you can learn a lot from them as well, testing your mental capacity as well. Yeah, and, and my hope is that ultimately once this has become a big success, that a couple of them then also say, okay, I want to try my hand at, at doing my own startup at one point. And the people that, that are eager to join a team for for the topic and not for the brand name the ones that like to work on an early alpha or at a beta version and not fine-tune version 3.7 those people um those people that, that like the early stage those are then also the ones that will either join another startup at some point in the future or i'll be part of a startup team at some point and 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 ultimately i think that's what every 
society needs and the German society needs a lot more of that. And so if that's the little contribution I can give or we as the founders can give to the economy, then I'm all for it. So the last question, Tim, if there's someone out there on the fence of like thinking they want to start a business, what's the number one bit of advice you would give them? Don't listen to your friends that are in all in high paid full time jobs at big companies because they're going to tell you that it's not going to work. And obviously, you got to bias yourself a little bit. So try to find an environment for yourself where you can explore that. Either you join programs like Founders Institute, or you just go, you look in your local area and, and try to do also physical meetups. Um, so through meetup.com, there are startup groups everywhere. Try to find a peer group that um, that you can discuss your ideas with. Most of the founders themselves are also looking for this peer group because normally what your family tells you about a startup is just their opinion. It's not experience. And mm-hmm. so what you, what you got to do is find a peer group. As I said, there's multiple programs out there. And it's not about the perfect idea, but if you don't have this network, this peer group of people, then you need that to pull you through the darker times that eventually will come. And so build your network with people. Try to also set like some sort of accountability because it's easy to get lost in the nitty gritty details that are completely irrelevant to actually build a startup. And that it, that could be your founder team. It just could become your next best friend that works on something else. And um and just keeps you accountable of have you done this have you done that and uh, because it's going to be lonely multiple times <laughs> that is very true so yeah. in summary ignore the naysayers with no track record and surround yourself with like-minded individuals yeah definitely definitely completely agree with that well tim thank you so much for joining me on the startup stories podcast it's been an absolute pleasure thank you jordan pleasure was all mine take care Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Startup Stories. I hope you enjoyed hearing from our guests and learning more about their journey in the startup world. I'll be back soon with another exciting episode featuring a new guest. So make sure to subscribe to Startup Stories so you never miss an episode. Also, don't forget to follow me on social media for updates and additional content. And if you have any suggestions for guests or topics you'd like to hear about, please reach out to me. And as always, I appreciate your support and feedback. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.